Hello and welcome to Sunday Messages with Fairmount Friends Church. We're so glad that you are joining us. You can find out more on www.fairmountfriendschurch.org. This time, Doug Harold, who is co-founder of Hands of Grace in Guatemala, speaks on his family's work in Guatemala and the impact they are making for the Lord. We are grateful for their service and that we can support them as a church family as they continue to minister to and meet the needs of the Guatemalan people. You guys hear me okay? I'm going to get my timer out so I don't go too far over my time, but uh, good morning. It's good to be here. Good to be back. And thank you so many of you that greeted us warmly beforehand. Last week we spoke at a church. I won't name the name of the church, but one of the first people that greeted me, I thought was a friend. They came up and said, hey, Doug, last time I saw you, you were a lot skinnier. And what I didn't say, but what I thought at the time was, you're not as tall as you used to be. (laughs) Oh, he also mentioned that my hair was a lot grayer, and he was completely bald. So, (laughs) but it's a pleasure to be here today. The first thing I want to do is thank you corporately as a church, and also individually for you that invest in our ministry, invest in our family. We know that without sacrificial giving of so many people and churches like Fairmount Friends that we couldn't be on the field in Guatemala doing what we believe God's called us to do. Secondly, I also want to thank you for the prayers, uh, not only for our family, but for Holly. As many of you know, she's been having some health issues over the last five months. It's been a a tough five months, to be honest. Um, In and out of doctors, in and out of hospitals, ERs, but we're thankful that we feel like she's turned a corner. Uh, This past week, we were visiting with her hematologist, and they have um, stopped her treatment for her blood clot. So she's off of her anticoagulants, which is an answered prayer. So we're thankful for that. She still has some issues with pain and burning in different parts of her body. And so we still don't have the answers for that, but we're, we're confident that we will. We're hoping those are symptoms of all the medications that she's taking so but thank you for the prayers we appreciate them we feel them so as we're here as she's as she's consulting with her doctors getting better our ministry continues so our feeding center our preschool our after school program that's being run by our leaders on the ground in Guatemala so we're thankful that we have people there that can continue the mission um I will go back to Guatemala on May 23rd with probably two of my kids, and Holly will stay here and continue to get better because she's not going to return back home to Guatemala until she's 100%. So, um, we, we, like I said, we appreciate the prayers, so if you would continue praying for her to heal, we would appreciate it. So, one of the frequent questions that I get is, what is it that you do in Guatemala? And, and... I could talk for a long time about all the projects that we have going, like I've already mentioned, the preschool, our feeding center, after-school program, medical clinics, and those are all fun things to talk about, but really what our ministry is about 
transcends all those programs. It's about relationships. And our mission from the very beginning is to offer friendship and hope to families living in impoverished communities. And that's what we do. And so today, instead of telling you guys about all these programs that we have, I want to share a couple stories with you. Stories of real people that have not only impacted us, but we've been able to, with, with, with the help of you guys and, and, and with, with God's grace, we've been able to, to help them as well. Um, one of them is Pastor Josue. He was a pastor, or he is a pastor, from the village of Los Lotes. I'll tell you about that, but there was a volcanic eruption last year, um, and he was one of only two pastors that survived out of this village. And I want to tell you his story. And I'm also going to talk to you a little bit about Doña Maria. She's a widow from the village of El Sitio where we serve. And tell a little bit about the miracle of, of what we experienced with her. So throughout this year, there, there was really a verse that really spoke to me. And I want to share, with, share it with you today. And the context of the scripture is important. It's from the book of Isaiah. And during this time, uh, the Jewish people were in exile. They had been taken away from their land. Many families had been ripped apart. Many people had been killed or murdered. And if there was a great time of suffering in the time of the Jewish people, this was one of them. So they knew the pain and suffering of this time. And so I want to share this with you. You can go to the next slide. I think I've got a portion of it on here. I don't have the entire thing. This is Isaiah 61 verse 1 through 3. It's a long, it's a long section, but I'm going to read it all. The spirit of the Lord and king is on me. The Lord has anointed me to tell the good news to poor people. He has sent me to comfort those whose hearts have been broken. He has sent me to announce freedom for those who have been captured. He wants me to set prisoners free from the dark prison. He has sent me to announce the year when he will set people free. He wants me to announce the day when he will pay his enemies back. Our God has sent me to comfort all those who are sad. And this is the this next is the one that really stuck with me. He wants me to help those in Zion who are filled with sorrow. I will put beautiful crowns on their heads in place of ashes. I will anoint them with oil to give them gladness and sorrow. I will give them a spirit of praise in place of a spirit of sadness. They will be like oak trees that are strong and straight. The Lord himself will plant them in the land. That will show how glorious he is. And I'd heard that text before, specifically, I will put beautiful crowns on their heads in place of ashes, but I never really got it. And to, to really understand the context, you have to understand the Jewish, Jewish culture. And what they would do in times of mourning, in times of great grief, they would either sit in ashes or cover themselves in ashes. That was their way of um, kind of in a, in a visual way showing their grief to others. And as I mentioned, the people at this time would have understood what this meant because they were in a, a great time of, of grief. So the first person I want to talk about is Pastor Josue, and I'll talk a little bit more about this verse and how that truth came, came about in a couple stories. So on Sunday, June 3rd of last year, you can go to the next slide, the fire volcano or Volcán de Fuego erupted. And that's not unusual. It's an active volcano. It's about seven miles from where we live. Uh, on the picture up there, the one on the right, it was taken from our like our, our terrace. 
And so that's, that's how close it is to us. This was actually a few days after the explosion. On the left is a picture that my good friend took. This is at a, it was a golf resort um, right on the side of, of Fuego. And he took this picture. One of his friends was, they were playing golf, and he took the picture. And that's not what he intended to get, but you can see the, the power of the volcano. Um, it is active, so it's not uncommon to see it puff. At night, you can see lava at the top. But what we learned not too long after this explosion was a little bit different. Um, within an hour, we had two inches of ash on our house and on our floor. It was just raining ash. And what we would find out shortly after that was this was a very serious situation. It was a major eruption. What made this one so dangerous and different was that it's, it was called a pyroclastic flow. And what I learned was that was, if you've ever heard of Pompeii, it's the same thing. But what happens is when the volcano exploded, the explosion was so dense, instead of blowing up in the air, part of it blew up in the air, and the rest of it shot down the side of the mountain. And so what it did is it created this, this cloud of gas and ash and fire and lava, and it shot it down the side of the volcano at about 400 miles per hour. So everything in its way was destroyed. Um, and unfortunately, there was a couple villages. And if you want to go to the next slide, this is a, a picture of one of those villages. Uh, it's called Los Lotes. And the picture, you can see the before and after picture. And it doesn't even really do it justice, the damage that was done. Um, so shortly after this happened, I contacted my friend Helbert, who's a pastor. He and his dad are pastors not far from this area. And I just said, Helbert. If there's any way we can help, let us know. Well, within a couple days, literally a couple days of the event, Helbert showed up at our door with, with Pastor Josue, who I've already mentioned. Uh, he was, there were, I believe, six pastors in this village, and, and only Pastor Josue and another pastor, Pastor David, survived. That's how serious it was. And in fact, every member of Pastor Josue's congregation died. So with him there, with him there, we knew that we wanted to help, and we didn't know what way we were going to help, but we wanted him to know that we were going to help his family, we are going to help his church, and help his community, and so he offered to share a story, we didn't ask for it, but he did, and he talked to, for about 30 minutes about what happened that day, and he had shared that in the afternoon, he had went to a city about 30 miles away to, to a prayer meeting. And he was meeting with some friends and family, and they were in a room together, and they were just praying. And his phone started ringing, and it wouldn't stop ringing. And it rang and rang, and he knew something was wrong. And so he excused himself from the meeting and stepped outside. And when he took his phone out, he answered the call that was ringing. And I remember him saying he wasn't sure who it was, and the line wasn't good. It was very staticky. But what he got from that short conversation was this. Um, he said the village was gone, nothing was left, many are dead, most of and, and buried under an avalanche of lava and ash, don't come back. And the first, the only thing that he could think about was his family. He had left them there that day. And so, as you can imagine, his, his, his life changed in that moment. And so he did what all of us would do. He, he got a vehicle and he started to drive back. And he said, I'm going to find my family. So he just starts driving and driving and driving. 
So let's go back in time a little bit before the explosion and we go back to the village. It's a normal day for this, this family in, in the community. The mom, her name's Letty. She was in the house. She was probably doing clothes, probably preparing for the next week, probably getting things ready for, for supper that night. And her kids were outside and they were all playing. They were playing with the neighbor kids. They were within one block of their home. So they were very, very close um, right around where, where home was. And in an instant, they both, the, the four kids, there's four kids, they heard, felt, and saw the explosion. And they knew this was different. And, and instantly they had to make a decision. They either had to run back home where their mother was, but it would be back into the cloud that was, they could see coming toward them. Or they could run down to the highway and escape the best that they could. They were about a block from either her home, their home, or the highway. So now we're going to jump back to Pastor Josue. He's been driving for about 20 minutes, and he's beginning to see people along the side of the road. And he's fearing the worst. And he's driving and driving, and then he sees his family jogging down the side of the road. And he shared how that was, in his life, that was the greatest thing he'd ever seen. So he jumps out of his car. He goes up, and he's hugging. They're reunited. The kids are sobbing. He's crying. And after a couple moments, he realizes his wife isn't there. It's just the kids. And he said, Where, where's mommy? Where is your mom? And the kids still crying uncontrollably, as you might imagine. The oldest daughter says, she burned up. She burned up. So they had made the decision to run away knowing that their mom probably died in that house that day. So Josue, who's had these, all these emotions that he's felt, you know, he just thought he got his family back. And now he's going to have to leave his kids to go and try and find his wife. And that's what he decided to do. So he left his kids on the side of the road with a friend and got back in his car and he drove. And he didn't drive far. He drove about five miles, he said. And he said he, w he was almost to the village and he got to the road and he said there was about eight feet to ten feet of debris over the highway. And he could get no further. And so he gets out. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of people. You know, some are just standing there. Others are screaming. And he's looking for his wife. He's looking for his wife. And he said after a few minutes, he finally sees what he says is the next next thing he ever saw. His wife was covered from head to toe in ashes and mud. And they run up and embrace and as he's telling us this story, we're, we're, we're all just bawling because we could see how emotional it was for him and how tough it was to think that he had lost his entire family and then only by the grace of God he was able to find them. And, and it was in that moment when I thought back of this verse of the ashes. And like I said, it never really meant anything to me until I heard this. And so... You know, everybody's crying, and, and I really felt God say, read him that, that verse. So I looked back to my friend Hilbert, and I said, you, we need to find this verse. I couldn't remember exactly where it was at. I said, no, it's in Isaiah. We found it. And Hilbert started at verse 1, and he was reading it, and he got to the point about 
exchanging the ashes for beauty, and he loses it. And Josue starts to cry because he knows, too, what it means. But in that moment, what that, what that truth or what that promise is, is there is hope. In the midst of that tra- tragedy, in the midst of that heartache, there's hope that only God can provide. The world can't provide that type of hope. And so for the next six months, we walked with this family through their, through their pain. They were in and out of, of, um, of shelters. Their kids were in and out of school. They were, they were dealing with all of the baggage that comes from experiencing something like that. And um, you can go, if you, so if you go back real quick, one, you'll see that this was actually his house. It's completely covered. And then you go to the next one. And then about six months later, I had a, a really special moment with them. And... We, through, through some very generous people and through our home church, we were able to raise money. We'd, we raised a lot of money to help volcano victims, but you can see here, we were able to purchase him a piece of land uh, and build him a home. And it was the day, less than six months after that accident, that we were at his home. You can go to the next slide. And it was this, one more slide. It was this day, and when we were basically delivering the keys to them, and um, he, he shared, I know it was something that he wanted to share, and he just said that June 3rd was the worst day of his life. And he said the following six months had been hell. You know, he had, they had suffered and in so many ways. And that, but what they truly experienced was God's grace and mercy in so many ways also during that six months. And he said that I wouldn't change it for anything. He said, if it wasn't for that, his new ministry or his new church wouldn't be thriving. He said, I'm ministering to people that were affected just like I was. And there's new people in the community, too, that they're, that they're working with. In addition to that, his wife has a women's ministry. She's speaking life into women from that village as well. And he said he knew that their ministry wouldn't be like that if he hadn't experienced that. And so... As he shared that, for me, it was that moment of, of being ex- that exchange of ashes for a crown of beauty because all that pain, God made something out of it and, and gave him a purpose. And he was doing what God had called him to do to really pour back into other people. So that was a, that was a really cool moment. Now, the next lady I want to talk to you about, uh, the next person I want to talk to you about is Donia Maria. And you can go to the next, there she is right there, that's... Donia Maria and her son, Oliver and Celia. Um, God's really placed a burden on our heart for widows and, and mothers, single mothers. And in these villages that we work, there's a lot of them. Um, they have a very, very hard life, as you can imagine. Life is hard in the villages regardless, but if you're a single mom or a widow, it's really hard. Um, and what makes Donia Maria so special is she's not like the other women in our ministry. She keeps to herself. She doesn't talk too much, and she doesn't get involved in a lot of the shenanigans that the other women get to because there's always fighting, and she's, she's not one of those. She's, she's never been one to, to get into all of that. 
two years ago, we got to know her a little bit better because her daughter Celia had just graduated from sixth grade. And that's, to be honest, quite uncommon for kids in villages. They, they drop out of school before then, especially the girls. And I was talking to her about what her plans were, and she said she's not going to continue to study. She's going to um, she's gonna start working because her mom needs, needs help. And, and so I asked, I'm like, do you want to study? And she said, yeah, I really do, but I know that's just, I don't have that opportunity. So I said, well, if, can I talk to your mom about it? And she said, sure, but it's not going to happen. So I, I met with Donia Marie, and we talked, and, and, and you know, we talked a about a lot of different things, and, and I finally got to my point, and I said, can, what's, what's Sally going to do? Is she going to continue studying, or is she going to work? No, she's going to work. I really need her. And I said, well, what if we help? What if we provide a scholarship so you don't have to pay anything? And she said, well, she appreciated it, but, you know, we really needed to work because it's a matter of, you know, food on the table. And so I said, what would it take for you to accept this? What can we do at your home to help you? And she just said, rice and beans. So I said, okay. I said, each month we'll provide you the rice and beans you need. That will cover what you would have gained by her working. And so Celia became our very first scholarship student, and now we have eight, which we're pretty proud of, but she became the first. She's in the ninth grade right now. She's doing awesome. She is an example and a leader for the others in her community. Um, now, Maria, she, it's very common, too, in these rural areas where in the houses they live, they have wood-burning stoves, or how they cook, and so the homes are always full of smoke. So she's had damage from from being in the smoke, like most women have there. Um, she also is outside a lot. They don't wear sunglasses. A lot of their eyes are damaged by the sun. And so because she had some eye troubles, um, during one of our eye clinics that we were provided, she had the opportunity to go to another, visit another town with a state-of-the-art uh, eye clinic. And so we were going to be picking her up one day to take her to one of these clinics. And so she'd already been once with us. We picked her up. And we had no problem. And so she had to go back a second time. And it was actually for the day of her surgery, I believe. And so we, we came across, it was on a busy highway that we were doing this. And we pulled off to the side. It's actually a five-lane road, two, two, lane, whoops, two lanes going each way and then a, a turn lane in the middle. And it's on a curve. It's really dangerous. And it was five in the morning. It was pitch black. I mean, I literally could not see five feet in front of us. And... Um, it's safe where she could cross because there's a walkway to go over. And so she was running behind, be and I had talked to her just a couple minutes ago. She said, I'll be about 10 minutes late. And so there's about seven of us in the van, and we're waiting, and we're watching, and we're watching, and we don't see her, and cars are going by, still no Maria. And then in a moment that I'll never forget, this car truck comes along the behind us and on the curve and I didn't see Maria until the headlights were on her face and it just missed Donia Maria's daughter-in-law, her name's Vilma it missed hitting her by just inches and it hit Donia Maria and m my guess is the truck was going at least 55 miles an hour, didn't break sped off, never stopped and not only will I never forget seeing the look on her face when the headlights were on her, but just the sound. And we jumped out of the van, 
not knowing what we will see, I fully expected her to be dead. In fact, I fully expected severe trauma that I wasn't sure I'd be ready for. And the truck had knocked her about 25 feet across the road. And she was just laying there. Like I said, I, I fully expected she was dead. And so I knelt, knelt down, checked for a pulse. She had a faint pulse. She was not breathing much. And, and she had blood trickling off of her head and out of her mouth. And so an ambulance had been called. And so I knelt down. And during this short minute or two that we were there, I'd kind of blocked it out, but then it kind of came to me. Her daughter-in-law who was there had been screaming my name over and over to help. And so I just knelt there and, and put my arm on her because I just didn't want her to die alone. That was the only thing I could think is I didn't want her to die alone. And so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I wish I could say I said some very bold prayer to God to save her. I don't think I did because... I was just in such shock, um, but it was truly a miracle that she did survive. The truck had fortunately hit her he had on the front right side, and so it just kind of pushed her off the, it didn't push her, it threw her off the side of the road. The medics did arrive within four minutes. Um, there's so much to the story that is crazy, I, I can't share it all, but um, they took her to the National Hospital, which most people, <laughs> that's where you go to die, actually, because it's the treatment there is so bad. But we went and tried to offer as much help as we could. She ended up having broken ribs. All of her ribs were broken on one side. She had a punctured lung. She had a broken vertebrae in her back. And she had road rash from just sliding across the road. So she was, when she was in the hospital, the doctor saw her for probably the first hour or two after she got there to get treatment started. After those first two hours, a doctor did not come to see her for three more days. So we weren't sure what was going to happen, but she did live. Ten days later, she was let out of the hospital. She really shouldn't have been, but she was, and she went home, and she was in bed for weeks. She is still recovering. This is the home that she, she lived in. You can see it's made out of mud and sticks. Um... But we had a special moment with Doña Maria, too, like we did with Pastor Josue. So in, in, in November of last year, again, about six months after, you can go to the next slide, um, there were two um, hog farmers from, from Missouri that somehow we got hooked up with, and they said, we're looking to build a house. And we introduced them to her, and they're like, she's the one. And so... Through that, Maria got a new new home, and we were sitting there. I was standing there the day before this party, and I was talking to her, and I said, Maria, I will never, ever forget that day. She said, I won't either. And I said, you know it's a miracle you lived, don't you? She said, I do now. And I said, you know that God loves you deeply, and he knows you, and he's got a plan for you. And she put her head down. See, she's a, she's a person that through, through the tough, hard life she's lived, she truly believed God didn't love her. And she told me, she said, before that accident, I thought, why would God love somebody like me? And to see her know that through that accident, she said, since I've had that accident, I know. 
She goes, she's put people in my lives that have loved and cared for me. And I would not have ever known that if I hadn't been through that accident. She goes, I wouldn't want to go through it again. But she goes, I, I know that he's drawing me closer to him. And so that was a special moment with her. And she's still recovering, but that was really, when she had recognized that and could share that, that was really her moment too of God was exchanging those ashes for a crown of beauty. So I wanted to share these with you today because not only have these two people, you know, touched our hearts, but you guys are a part of that. You know, because of your investment in us and our family, we're able to serve. We're able to invest in people like Pastor Josue, and he's, he's doing incredible things for the kingdom right now. We're able to love on people like Donia Maria. Um, and she told me, she, do, she goes, I know God has a plan for me. And so we'll see what his plan is for her. But um, thank you. Thank you once again for the prayers for our family, for Holly. And um, thank you for having us. Well, if we could, to end our time, Holly and, I can't remember her name, Maya, Maya, would you both come forward? Could we pray over you guys here up front? Would you bow with us? Heavenly Father, thank you for the work that you've done in and through the Herald family and the way that they just get to love on people. They get to recognize that it's about relationships. It's about the stories. It's about the way that you were involved. And as they go through this time of uncertainty with Holly's health, God, just, just heal her. Give, her. give them understanding. Give the doctors what they need to know so that they can provide a healing touch. Or if it's, God, that you, through that, you perform a miracle and that we understand that she has been healed and she can go back to being down there and being in a place where they believe she needs to be. God, as they go back here in the next few days and weeks and months and years, and God, as you continue to put that call in their lives, may they understand that you love them and that we are able to provide just a little way of encouragement, that we get to hear the stories that they get to experience on a daily basis, and may we know that where we're at in our lives, we get to... Um, empower them, and then through that, uh, the folks here are able to empower others in their community to love on others and to provide opportunity for others to get on their feet, to continue to put your work first, to put your work as they're moving forward. God, give them uh, safe travels over the next few weeks and months, and we pray for traveling mercies as they go back and forth and take care of what needs to be taken care of. God, it's a big deal that they're down there. It's a big deal that you've put this call on them and that they get to live this out, that they get to give up their lives to do that. God, thank you for the words that were shared this morning. And as we go from here, we, may we remember what is going on in other parts of the world. We know that there's big things happening, there's scary, terrible tragedies, and yet in the midst of that, there's hope. Today is a good morning. So we're so glad you were with us today. You can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or your preferred podcasting app. Be sure to rate us so other people can know about the podcast.